We're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 15. We started in verse 22 last week, so if you want to look there, we'll pick up from there. And We're getting into that section that right after the sons of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they sing a song of praise to the Lord, and very quickly they just forget what had happened. You know, they, they weren't remembering the plagues and their deliverance. They weren't remembering the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, the way that they saw it was, you know, the reason that uh, Yahweh had brought them out into the wilderness was to kill them. And immediately they're complaining about water, which is ironic given the fact that he had just delivered them through the water. You know, instead of saying, well, Lord, you can do whatever you want with water. And so we are making our appeal to you <laughs> to give us some water. But instead, they don't see, you know, the Lord as being the one who's running everything. They think it's Moses. So they go and they grumble to Moses. And then Moses eventually figures out, guys, I'm not the one who's in control of the water. I didn't bring you out here. And if I had it my way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have brought any of you with me. <laughs> he'll say something like that later but <laughs> uh, so he's out there the Lord has delivered them and they're, they're ultimately grumbling against their deliverer and picking up in verse 22 we went through that first paragraph last week 20, 22 to 26 and I'll read that to you and just kind of give you some summary and highlights on that. If you want more detail on, on this lesson, which I have some notes for here on the board, that's recorded and it's on the website. So starting here on Exodus 15, 22, says, Then Moses had Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And they came, they came to Marah. But they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he set for them a statue and a judgment, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will earnestly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, Yahweh, am your healer. And it's here in Scripture that we get a foundation for how you understand the nature of the law, or the nature of Torah, which is used in a verbal form in verse 25, after it says Moses cried out to Yahweh, it says Yahweh torahed him a tree. You know, he showed him a tree. He instructed him concerning a tree. He pointed him to the way of salvation. And that's the nature of the law. As I have written up here, you see, it involves a mediator. There's somebody who makes an appeal for you. You see Moses doing that. And it instructs to the means of salvation. In this case, it was a tree of life which gave living water 
to the people. And it also indicts the human heart because you're going to see these people that when it comes and it tests their heart, it shows them what's really in their heart. They don't have any interest in God's salvation. They don't have any interest in the tree of life. They don't want to partake of it. And if you were to just sum up the nature of the law or the Torah in one word, it's that it instructs. That's what it does. It, it's not a means of salvation itself. It's not a way to be saved, but it's something that it points to how you're saved and it, and it points out that you need to be saved because it shows you that you don't keep God's instruction. You don't have any interest in his instruction. So it teaches you that God is holy and that you're sinful and you need him to provide salvation that involves a tree and water. Just one question, though. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in the scripture here, it says, there he made them a statute and regulation. He is being calculated? Yes. And he made them a statute. What, what does that mean? Because uh, the reason why that sign kind of Oh, it's a statute, oh, like a, oh, like a like principle. A like a law, I see, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the word, like... A statute, okay. Yeah, you'll hear the word law, statute, yeah, yeah, and yeah. judgment. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Some other words for that, so it's in, okay. would be like instruction, a principle, and a decision. So that's, that's part of the nature of the law as well, is it, it gives principles, but it also is helping you to understand God's judgment on certain things, like how he makes decisions about things. And it says there he tested them. You know, the, the law is something that tests the human heart. The way that Paul talked about it in Galatians, he said, you know, the, the law is a tutor. Yeah, it's something that teaches us that we need, that we need Christ, and it, it tutors us to go to him. Uh, it teaches us to grow up and move out of Moses' house and to move into Jesus' house. And it says, you know, that time where we would call it, you know how we kind of talk about our, our Bible as Old Testament and New Testament? What we're trying to point out there is there, there was an old administration and how God did things back then to instruct. And then there's a new administration that comes in in Jesus where he gives the heart to want this instruction. He gives the listening heart. You know, he, he redeems the heart so that the fear of the Lord is there that desires his knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And you see in the, at the very end of that paragraph that the main thing that this instruction is toward, that the Torah is teaching is I, Yahweh, am your healer. So the law isn't something by which you can heal yourself. The law doesn't get you closer to God. This was the Galatian heresy where you had a lot of people that they said, well, yeah, we're believers. And Paul says, well, yeah, I get that you guys are calling yourselves Christian, but you know, 
if you started your life in Christ by the Spirit, are you going to be perfected in the flesh now by the law? Like the way that you become a next level Christian is you add the Mosaic law to your life and that's what sanctifies you or makes you more holy? He says, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You know, the law was, it's instead supposed to teach you that you're unholy, that you can't do it and that you need Christ to not only be the one who makes you right with God, but he's also the one who helps you grow like him as well. The law doesn't justify you or sanctify you. Uh, Christ does both of those, and you're to look to him alone for those things. And if you look up uh, last week's lesson and listen through that, we go through you know, how Paul reasoned in Galatians, looking at these elements of the law and how it involves a mediator. It instructs to a means of salvation. It indicts the human heart. And it ultimately teaches that God provides and he will be the mediator, the means, and the medic that heals you. You know, it's all pointing uh, to Christ. He's going to be the ultimate mediator for sinful man. He's also going to be the means which is sacrificed on the tree and the one from whom living waters flows, and he is Yahweh the healer. But he does all of the law for his people who couldn't and wouldn't. And that's what you see when you keep, especially in this section that we're beginning to look at here in Exodus, is that the people don't want a relationship with Yahweh at all. They have zero interest in it. They think that he's evil. They say, it would be better to be under Pharaoh than you. You didn't bring us out here to, to give us life. You brought us out here to kill us. And they don't see the grace of God in any of this. They call good evil and evil good and life death and death life. You know, they're confused on everything. And so you see that they're unbelieving, that they need a greater exodus than just being relocated. They need to have be given a, a new heart sort of exodus. They need to not just be moved from uh, one property to another, but they need to have their hearts totally changed. And God is instructing the nations that this is what everybody on the planet needs. And he's instructing them through what's happening with the nation of Israel, which he's beginning to build. So they're not a nation yet, but they will be. They're going to get their constitution later. They're like the preamble to the constitution is that they're a kingdom of priests and they'll get the rest of it in the Ten Commandments and then Moses will preach how, to, how they were to apply those Ten Commandments under the administration of this particular time. So picking up in verse 27... Here it says, they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms and they camped there beside, besides the waters. What do you think is significant about there being 12 springs of water and 70 date palms? How many tribes of Israel are there going to be? Yeah, there are 12, but you get this sort of concept that there's living water that comes to them and through them. You know, how does that, this is uh, 
a connection back into Eden, that there's going to be some capital city where there's going to be a people from which the water flows out from there everywhere else. But in particular, to teach that there's going to be this living water that flows to them and through them, that they're going to be the nation which was promised to Abraham, that blessing would come to them and through them to the other nations. And then the 70 date poems, that just reminds us that God is forwarding that plan. You remember when uh, Jacob and his sons and their families came into Egypt, how many were there? There were 70. And he's saying, you know, through that 70, God showed his faithfulness in multiplying and fruitfuling the people, that they were increasing. He said, the, the, the promise covenant to Noah, to Abraham, all of that stuff is moving forward through this particular nation. You know, this living water is going to flow through them. Uh, they're going to be the, the fruitful people. You know, date palms, that's fruit. You know? Yeah. And they camp there besides the waters where they, they should be growing as trees of righteousness, but they have to be made a new tree to have that good fruit. And verse 16 says, They set out for Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Zin. And I'm reading it as Zin, so don't confuse it with sin, because that sounds like the word sin to us. <laughs> That's not what it's uh, trying to communicate. It's just what the place name sounds like. But This is all of the congregation. This isn't some of the congregation at this point, because you're going to read that they grumble. So it's not like, oh, well, maybe there were just like a few righteous. It's like, no, there is none righteous. There is no one who does good. There is no one who understands in all of the congregation. He says, this wilderness of Zen, it's between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after this departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, they had been given some law, they had been given some instruction, but you see, you know, law didn't cure these people of their whining. And part of what we under, understand and learn from the nature of the law here is that law is, it's, it's legislation, it's not medication. Just because you instruct somebody to do something, it doesn't heal them. And it doesn't even necessarily help them to understand that they're even sick to begin with. But God had given them a law, a statute, a judgment. And even with that and them being tested, none of that cured them. None of that helped them to see things as they, they ought. But what it was doing is diagnosing their sickness. It's like, well, what's wrong with you? You guys think that you need water, but I give you water and you complain about it. So what's the real problem here? Yeah, it's, it's not the water. It's you guys. You guys are the problem. And it's what's in you that defiles you. It's not the situation that you were put in. The situation tested you and shows you that you fell the exam of meeting God's standard. And you see the test back there in verse 26 of it's to listen to the voice of Yahweh. You know, how are you guys doing it, listening to the voice of Yahweh, you, your God? How are you doing it, doing what is right in his eyes? 
How are you doing at giving ear to his commandments and keeping all his statutes? And even just starting to work through those sort of questions would stop the mouth of any man because you'd say, well, I'm not, I'm not doing too good at those things, you know, now that I'm being tested on them here. <laughs> but what it does is it, it diagnoses that they don't believe. It diagnoses that they don't listen. That they have unbelieving, unlistening hearts. And this test, one of the things that's important to know about it, it says, you know, if you will do these things, because you think, well, what, what would happen if they kept the law? It says, well, here's what it says at the end of verse 26. It says, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. So that's all that it would accomplish. You would just avoid those particular diseases, but it doesn't say, and you'll be healed of your sin, and you'll be healed of your grumbling, and you'll be able to rescue yourself somehow out of this situation. The law doesn't say, you know, this is so that you can heal yourself, and all you have to do is just listen to my voice, but the What's being learned when he says, listen to me, is it's teaching them your death. You're not even hearing what I'm saying at all. So the unbelieving, non-listening heart situation here is, it's so bad that the patient here is so far gone that they don't even realize that they're as sick as they are. Yeah, they were, which, you know, nobody lived through the whole 400 years, but, you know, that was their generational history. But you think about when you see those 10 plagues and they hear Yahweh says this and those kind of things happen. And he says, guys, you can trust me. <laughs> I mean, you're not going, I, we don't know if we can trust you. We think you're evil. So did you just see what happened to the Egyptians and how you guys got delivered? You guys, after you were delivered on the other side of the, the Red Sea, you know, they said, well, what is, what's the deal here, Moses? You know, did Yahweh bring us out here to put us in the grave? And he goes, you guys just watch. The grave isn't for you guys. It's for the Egyptians. And they watch them walk into the grave. But you see, they don't process all of this because what, what the Lord is teaching them through all of it is like, even when you guys see those sort of things, you don't believe. That's how radical your unbelief and your sin is. Like, you're actually blind to it. None of, none of them say anything about the Red Sea. None of them say anything about the plagues. None of them say anything about the deliverance that happened. It was like they never saw it and they never heard anything. These sons of Israel here, you see that they were so sick that they didn't even, they weren't even well enough to, to know to look for a healer. But Yahweh is graciously showing up as a healer and to instruct you know, all nations for all time from this particular event that we're looking at. You remember these 
sons of Israel and how they were responded to all of this. You know, they had seen this tree and this water that had given them life. They had heard the words that I, Yahweh, am your healer. But the way that they process this in 16.3, as they say, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. You know, I mean, just think about that just on a human level. Look, look, you're, you're parched of thirst. You think you're going to die. Somebody gives you some water. And then you say, it would be better if I had died than you gave me that cup of water. <laughs> it's like, I don't think you understand what just happened here. <laughs> and they said, you know, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. And they say, you know, it'd be better for us if we just got killed like all of the Egyptians than delivered. Like Egypt is way better than this. <laughs> we would rather go back into slavery you know, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. You know, part of the irony in this is they didn't die in Egypt, which was the house of slavery, as the Egyptians did in the plagues. Okay? They're confused about the difference between life and death, and they're also confused about who is really leading them. And who was really leading them back then? Was Pharaoh leading them then? Is Moses leading them now? Oh, what's being taught here is that it's always been the Lord leading them all along and throughout all of these situations. But what we see is these people wanted to follow their, their gut rather than God as their guide. What I mean by that is, you know, they wanted to follow, you know, we feel thirsty. They wanted to follow, you know, we're hungry, but... That's all that they wanted from the Lord. But they would just go to Moses. You know, Moses, we want this. Moses would mediate and pray for them. And the Lord here, what is interesting is he just doesn't. He doesn't strike the pew. He doesn't say, you know, you people are ungrateful and you're grumbling. Punishment. Serpents will bite you now. That happens later in the other text. But here, you know, God is teaching, I'm gracious even when you don't deserve it and you ask for things that I can provide for you and you don't acknowledge me at all and you don't thank me at all, I still give it to you. Uh, he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He provides food for the good and the evil. Which helps us to understand what, what kind of God does a people like this need? Well, they need a gracious God like that. Uh, they need a, a patient provider who's going to endure with them through their stubbornness. But more than all of that, they, they need a heart healer, somebody who's going to cure the, the source of the real malady that they have, which resides in their sinful, corrupt hearts. And they primarily need a God who can say, I, Yahweh, am your healer. And he has also the strength to do what he's commanding them to do. Like he has to perform what he's instructing them to do because they can't do it. So that's one of the things that, that the law does. You know, it, it instructs that you can't bring yourself to salvation. Uh, God has to do that by himself. You're dead in your sin. You know, you're you're passed out and unconscious. Uh, your only hope is that 
God makes you alive and delivers you out of that situation. And a person like that, you understand that they don't attribute anything to the process. All that they, they bring to their salvation is the need for it. And to top it off, they're not even interested in being saved. They think, you know, being rescued in this situation is actually the worst thing that could happen to us. It would be better to be in Egypt. It would be better to be in slavery. It would be better if we just died with, you know, all the other firstborn in Egypt. So what kind of salvation does this people need? What does he need to change in them? There's, you know, two words that are really emphasized here through Exodus, and it was the has to do with my sermon title from last week. My sermon title from last week was, Will Anyone Believe or Listen to Yahweh? <laughs> That's the kind of salvation they need. They need a salvation that will give them belief and make them listen. That's why somewhere in the message, if I said what was in my notes, then... Uh, in answering that question, the answer to the question, will anyone believe or listen to Yahweh? You know, the, the answer is yes, but only if he makes them. He has to make that change in them. It's not a change that they can make. He instructs them to do that. He instructs them to believe. He instructs them to listen. But all that does is teach them that they don't. And they need him to make that change in them so that their food would become the will of the one who would deliver them. What they're being taught is the provision that they need isn't you know, water and bread, but the provision that they need is to be living by God's word. God's word is the bread. God's word is the water. God's word is how he provides for them and he guides them. But they're saying, well, we don't, we don't want that. And last week we talked about how Jesus taught this particular instance in the wilderness, exactly like how I'm explaining it to you. You remember when he explains himself being the, the bread from heaven to the people who came out to hear his teaching out in the wilderness? He multiplies the bread and the fish, and he tells them, you know, I, I am the bread from heaven, which when you're reading that in John, you've already, you already know he is the word of God. And it's like, on the word of God is the bread from heaven. He's the provision that you need. Uh, he's the mediator. He's the instructor. But he's also the one who indicts the human heart. So he says, I can tell you why you're all here right now. You just came here to get bread from me. But what you really need to eat is me. What you need to ingest into yourself is the bread from heaven. Which is saying, that's a really weird thing to say. But... It's not if you understand what's happening here in Exodus because it's making the point is what, what you need is the word of God to be born inside of you. You need the life of God to come in you and be born in you so that you're born again, living in the life of God, which is also called eternal life in scripture, which doesn't mean just really long life, but it's being in union with God's life rather than separated from it. You know, being in God's family and enjoying that rather than being separate from it. Well, these people, we see all these issues with 
their water and their whining. Do you think that a little bread would be nice with the wine? Well, let's pick up in verse 4 here. 16 verse 4 says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my law. So you see, that's what the test is. The test is, are they going to do this or not? Now it will be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Why do you think that they're going to gather twice as much on the sixth day? Yeah, they're going to be resting on that day. So you see, God even provides for the rest that they need. You're going to find out that they, they are not going to follow this instruction. Yeah, we don't want to do that. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening, you will know that Yahweh has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of Yahweh. For he hears your grumblings against Yahweh. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, This will happen when Yahweh gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. Now when you hear those words, in the evening and in the morning, what is this? What other part of the Bible does that remind you of? And there was evening and there was morning. Yeah, it's creation week. Uh, you're having all sorts of ties going back into that. It's like, well, what was so significant about the creation week? God said, God said, God said. Everything happens by God's word. You know, the provision that everything in creation needs is God's word. It's that, well, you know, how do they respond to, to God's word? You know, picking up uh, in verse 8 in the middle, it says, For Yahweh hears your grumblings. That's how they respond to his word. Which you grumble against him, not against Moses and Aaron. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against Yahweh. You know, he's the one who did these things. He's the one who is saying these things. Uh, we're, we're just delivering the mail. We didn't write the message. So here you see God raining bread from heaven to show that his word was to be the ultimate source of food, but it was a test to see whether or not they would walk in his law. And what was the results of the test? Would they walk in it or not? They get an A or an F. Yeah, they, they didn't walk in God's Torah instruction. But why is it that God gave them this test? If you look over at Deuteronomy 8, 2, I'm going to turn over there we'll answer that, to answer that question. Why did God give them this test? You'll find it very plainly stated in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Yeah, you go ahead and read you read verse two and three. You wanna read it? Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, Moses, what was going on there? He's like, let me say it again. <laughs> Just a, the, the best uh, Bible commentators and teachers are the Bible authors, right? <laughs> and so when you see that, he said, you, you guys need to remember that. This is a future generation. You know, the, the people who were saved in the Exodus had kids. Now Moses is teaching the kids. And he says, he, he did these things to humble you in testing you to know what was in your heart. That's kind of a strange phrase, but you see the testing wasn't so that God can find out what was in their heart. He doesn't say, you know, he humbled you informing himself to know what was in your heart. He says testing you to know what was in your heart. It was to teach you about the sin that resided there and to show you, yeah, I don't keep God's commandments. And he says, he humbled you. And it's like, well, how did he do that? Well, he let him be hungry for a little while. Not because he was trying to be cruel or uh, because he was planning to kill them. But he was always planning to feed them. But he wanted to teach them something about themselves that there's something more important than eating, which was to teach them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's like what what you guys were supposed to be living by was every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Which is, you know, when you think about Adam, did Adam do that? Did he live by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God? Adam didn't do it. What about Israel? Did Israel do it? No, they, they didn't. It's like, well, we need somebody who can go through the same thing as Adam and Israel, but not fail at it. And so when you think about Jesus, you know, it's prophesied that there's one who's going to come, who's going to be a second Adam, but he's going to bring life instead of death. He's also called Israel, but he's the king of Israel. And, and the point being made by Isaiah when he calls the Messiah Israel is that He's the representative that's going to lead them into life. He's going to be everything that they should have been for them in their place as their substitute. So now when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Satan quotes this verse exactly to him. Or, well, he quotes another section, but then Jesus answers with, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone because what, what Satan quotes to him is, you know, just turn these stones into bread. You could do that. But Jesus recognizes there's times when God has a purpose of making you hungry and you can trust him amidst that. 
Israel didn't understand that, but I do, and I'm doing this for them so it can go on their record that they did trust me because I'm a, I'm a substitute God truster for my people. Uh, he's a substitute righteousness for them. And so the correction he gives is that you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you look in Deuteronomy 8, verse 16, this also helps you to get, get a little more perspective on this wilderness event. Deuteronomy 8, 16. It's like, why, why did God feed him with manna? He says, well, in the wilderness he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Their complaint was, well, what you're doing to us is evil. He says, no, he was always doing this to do good to you. And he says, look at everything that has happened. You know, at this point in Deuteronomy, they're coming to stand before the land that was promised to Abraham. You know, they're getting ready to enter into it. And he says, you know, think about all these things that, that God did for you. That he, he manipulated, well, maybe not manipulated, but he, he controlled everything within creation to demonstrate the greatness of his love for you and the plagues to show he, he, he will do everything that he can from water to land to sky to display his love for people, for this particular people that he would deliver. And so you think, you know, the, the, the context of Genesis through Deuteronomy is Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? So this generation that's looking back and getting the book of Exodus, they've already lived through all of this stuff. They're already out in the wilderness when they're hearing these things. So they already understand something about these sort of things, but now they're there looking at the, the promised land in front of them and hearing, yeah, God's been faithful. Our people were fruitful and multiplied, just like he said to Abraham. Look how he powerfully delivered you know, parents and grandparents through the Red Sea. And look at how they responded to him. Uh, that's where Moses leaves off with them in, in Deuteronomy and explaining to him, you guys also are not going to follow the Lord. You are the children of your parents. You can't listen and you won't listen. You need to circumcise your hearts, which, you know, when they hear that, they just say, I mean, who can do that? <laughs> I mean, who can circumcise their heart? And then Moses then connects them to what we call the new covenant. He says, God's going to give you a new heart someday. He's going to do what he has commanded you to do for you, to do good for you in the end. And we need to remember that in you know, our, our own trials in life, you know, to look at it, you know, when the pressure comes, when the difficulty comes, whatever it may be, you know, whether you, you lack food, you lack water, health condition, life circumstances, finances, relationships, whatever, you name it. You have to remember, uh, I don't live by my understanding of these circumstances. I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God whom I can trust. I can trust him in this situation and he's doing something to teach me something through this. 
the difficulty, the trial, the test is to teach me something about, about myself to do good to me in the end. And as it says in Romans chapter 8, that God, he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. And it ties that into the concept of being conformed to the image of Christ. So the good isn't defined by you. You think, well, the good thing would be, you know, if gas prices went down and I could get a bigger vehicle that was a gas guzzler, but it wouldn't matter because it was only 50 cents a gallon. But it's good according to God's definition, which is you becoming more like Christ, not getting the worldly things that you want or getting you know, the cravings of the flesh, but making progress in holiness, making progress in Christ's likeness. And we want to also recognize about Jesus when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, when he was tempted to make the stones become bread and he quoted the Bible to battle a misinterpretation of the Bible. I say, and man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He was not only accomplishing our salvation and doing the righteous thing that we needed to have on our account, but he was also giving us an example. So those who have been redeemed to him were not just saved to Christ, but were also saved to the law of Christ. We're saved to the instruction of Christ. So we got a new relationship to him and his word. So the we want to do it, and we can by his power that he works in us. And we do it by his example. So you see, Jesus becomes the instructor, but he also becomes the empowerment behind the instruction. This is why the new covenant's better than the old, because it gives the heart and it gives the power to do it. It doesn't just say to do it. You think about you know, if you're, you're passed out in this room, you can't do anything. And somebody says, well, there's some instruction here on the wall. It says exit. And you're just laying there. You know, the instruction to exit does not save you. <laughs> you, you need a savior to come in and to rescue you from the room. You have to be given the power to do the thing that it instructs. In... 16, 5 through 7, we talked about how you hear these creation language, you know, on the sixth day, at evening, in the morning. What, it, what was the significance of the sixth day in the creation week? What was created on the sixth day? Now, what, what was created on the sixth day in creation week? Yeah, man. And so here he's emphasizing man and what he is. And then what was the next day after the sixth day? Yeah, it was the seventh day rest. So what's starting to be taught here is you guys need to be in that day, but you're not. You need to be in God's rest, but you're not. You need to enter into it, but you can't. And it says that, you know, on that day, 
you know, what, what would man see on that day, on the seventh day? Uh, you look at verse seven, it says, in the morning, you wake up on the seventh day and you will see the glory of Yahweh. It's like when your eyes are opened out of being what you are and you're healed, you'll see the glory of Yahweh, the creator and healer. This sort of concept is picked up in 2 Corinthians 3.18 to talk about you know, how is it that we grow in holiness? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It's in seeing him that we come to know him. It's in seeing him that we're conformed to his likeness and brought into following him in conformity to his word. But here with the sons of Israel and their blindness, they just thought, this is all Moses and Aaron doing this. And they totally miss the glory of Yahweh, which shows us that it's going to take a supernatural healing to resolve the kind of grumbling that resides in their hearts. So when you think here on, throughout the book of Exodus, two questions that are always good to ask is, what does this teach Israel about God? And what does this teach Israel about their salvation? Because what it taught them is what it teaches us too. It's going to teach us about that same God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's going to teach us about his salvation, how it worked then, is how it works now. So I'm going to just start with who is God? You know, we've learned he's the healer. He's the healer that you need. He's the creator and controller of all things in his creation, even being in the wilderness. And he's also the God who hears and he'll act. You know, when, when he's prayed to, he's going to answer. But he's also the provider, which they sinned against. They didn't want his provision, but he's also the grace which they were grumbling against. So what kind of salvation is it that these people need? Now, they, need a, they need a salvation that'll bring them into that seventh day rest that would bring them to rest from their grumbling and to rest in gratitude to the God of glory. What they needed healed was their wonder, ultimately, from within themselves to actually want Yahweh, to want to follow God. He had to heal their volition or will. I think wonder is still a good word to explain it, but, you know, their thinker, their their feeler, their wanter, all of that needed to be healed so that they would be alive to him. But what these people do here is, you know, they turn opportunities for gratefulness into opportunities for grumbling. Because they, uh, we want water, they get water. We're hungry. <laughs> and they're like three-year-olds, you know? And it's like, you know, and you give them some food, and like, what is this? We want different food. We want mac and cheese. <laughs> they need a, a salvation that would change them from calling God's provision evil to calling it good. And 
something that would save them also from thinking that the evil of Egypt was good. They keep saying, well, Egypt was awesome. <laughs> I mean, if we could just get back to there, that would be great. Which, I mean, there's nowhere, <laughs> there's nothing there. There's nothing in Egypt. I mean, there's, there's no food, there's no crops, there's lots of dead people. It's like, that would be better? <laughs> they need a, a salvation that would make them a new creation and to bring them into God's rest, which is the connection that's being made back into the original creation and the teaching of God's Sabbath rest, which when we look at this, you know, Paul, Paul tells us, as he taught the Corinthians, that these things were given as an example for us, you know, to look at our own hearts so that we wouldn't desire evil the same way that they did. And you think about situations where you find yourself, you know, you're doing the same. God's provided something for you, but you think that, well, this isn't good. Uh, he's not doing good in my life. Or you just totally forget it. You're not in remembrance of the reality that God is actually at work in your life for your good. And you grumble to other people that, well, you know, my situation in life right now just isn't what I think that it, it should be, the way that I understand things. It's like, well, who put you there in that situation? I said, well, God did. Well, you're not complaining against that person or those people. You're complaining against God. You're not complaining against Moses and Aaron. You're complaining against the God who's the God over everything in creation. Well, as you think about your own lives and what's unique about the situation you might find yourself in now, do you find yourselves grumbling about things from time to time? You know, maybe as a, you're a single person, you know, do you grumble about your singleness? If, you know, if only God would deliver me from my singleness. <laughs> Instead of just saying, he, he's doing this to me right now for my good. I don't totally understand it, but I know that I can trust him. Maybe I'll figure it out some other day. But for now, I know I can trust him. Or if you're, if you're married, you know, do, do you grumble about your marriage? Well, you know, Lord, it's the woman that you gave me. <laughs> or if you're a parent, you know, do you grumble about your children? You know, why are they so needy? Why do they have to be bothering me about these things now? As opposed to, you know, the, you know they're, they're a gift from God. Or, you know, if you're young, do you grumble about the fact that, well, if only I were older. <laughs> or if you're old, do you grumble about the fact that, well, if only I were younger. <laughs> God has a purpose for our youth and for our old age, and he can heal us of the grumblings that happen in both. And don't, don't overlook the glory of God and the fact that he, graciously he didn't kill you when you complained about the situation he puts you in in your life. It's like even though you, you complain about it, he doesn't just squash you the moment that it happens. But he's gracious. He still provides for you. But he tests you to show you where you're really at in your relationship with him. And he's doing it to do good for you within that. So I would say, 
you know, thank you, God, for the gift of singleness. Because, I, because I'm single, I, I can be more involved in serving other people in the church. You know, I have a, a freedom from certain things that other people don't, and I can commit to, to things that other, other people can't because God has given me that. Or to say, you know, thank you, God, for the marriage that I have where I can testify to Jesus' sacrificial love for his church and this church's glad submission to his loving rule. Uh, th- thank you, God, for my children to whom I desire to leave a legacy of fearing you and having a, a bold confidence in following you in your word. Or thank you, God, for my youth and the physical strength that I have to give to others while I grow in spiritual wisdom. Or, you know, if you're, if you're old, to say, you know, thank you, God, for the spiritual wisdom I have to share with younger people who can share their physical strength with me. Can you see how that, that sort of shift happens and how God has ordained life to happen? Young people are not wise, but they're strong. <laughs> they can use their strength to serve those who are older, but the older people have what they need, which is wisdom. And there's this exchange where God shows his grace of meeting the needs of both and that sort of interaction. So that's why I'm being in the youth group. I tell the, the young people, you know, you are not wise. There are many things you do not know, even though you think that you do. But you need to understand that you do not know very much. But you can give your strength to other people right now while you're gaining wisdom from others. But then when you're older, you have wisdom to share with others, but you don't have as much strength to give to other people. And that's all by God's design. And we want to be content in those situations. You know, whether we have much or whether we lack, whatever God gives us to know that it comes from you know, his good hand for our good. Why did God do these things here in Exodus with water and bread and meat? Well, it, that question is answered in verses 9 through 12. This is 16, 9 through 12. It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumblings. Now it happened as... Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they turned toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread so that you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. This is, you know, why use water? bread, meat, so that you may know that I am Yahweh your God. It wasn't because you made an appeal to Pharaoh or a golden calf or some other false idol or because you made an appeal to Moses or Aaron. It's so that you may know that I am Yahweh your God, which is the big point of Exodus that God would make himself known in who he is and what he does to everybody. If you're in Egypt, Israel, or the other nations, observing this. God is teaching this to all of them. And this is going to end up tying into understanding the meaning of Passover and how bread and meat 
relates to that particular event. It's starting to build into what's taught there that they'll celebrate the Passover so that you may know that I am Yahweh, your God. And we're going to have to stop there today. That's as far as we got to verse 12 there. So I'll close us in prayer and we can continue in fellowship into the main service. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you are good and you can only do good. You can never do anything that's evil. You can never do anything that's unholy. And we pray that you would help us to see the deceit in our hearts when we complain, which seems so quick a reflex in our own lives. We pray that you would break that sort of habit, that you would train us in Christ and a gratefulness and a quickness to believe that you are doing good and to be okay with not understanding our situation and to find our hearts resting and trusting in you, knowing that we can believe that you're good and listening to your word and seeking to be shaped in the moment in which you have placed us, knowing that it is for our good and for your glory. We pray that you would help us to receive this instruction from your word, that you would implant it in our hearts, that we might not sin against you and that we would more fully enjoy you and more faithfully make you known in our lives and to testify to your goodness until the day that we totally enter into your rest in which your whole creation will enter into your rest and there will be no lack, no sin, no more tears, no more complaining, no more death, only the enjoying of you and your presence and your good creation. Amen.